Welcome back to the Effort Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kleep, and on today's episode, it's Effort Weekly, Volume 11, with the team from NC Fit, Gabe Yanez, and Matt De La Valle. On today's episode, we talk about this idea of profitability and programming. What does that look like from a square footage perspective? Talk about steroids a little bit, supplements, carbohydrates, and we finish it off with this idea of technology and fitness. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we enjoy delivering them. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you know, if you have not checked out the Effort Over Everything 40-Day Challenge that starts January 10th, you got to check it out. The team and I are going to be hitting this. It's going to be 40 days of putting in the work and staying consistent. So make sure you check out the link in the description for more information. And also, you can visit my Instagram, Jason Klepa. It's in the link in bio. Without any further ado, let's dive into an incredible episode with Gabe Yannis and Matt De La Valle. Let's go. <laughs> Should profitability be considered in programming? I thought that was a really interesting topic because for so many years, uh, in particular, like old school CrossFit, it was designed on the program and it wasn't considered for the business. Whereas other businesses that you see spark up, uh, for example, I'd imagine when Orange Theory is putting through their program, they're thinking about how many people can we accommodate in a given amount of space and then And then obviously the program needs to be effective, of course, but they're looking to optimize square footage. Whereas in CrossFit, that's really never a topic of conversation about optimizing square footage or what the, the, what it looks like. And it's always about, you know, is this program effective? And so I think it brings up this really interesting question about should profitability, retention, what members like, and how many people can you accommodate? be taken into consideration while programming. It just is not something we talk about, right? Well, I don't think it's not taken into consideration. I think anybody who's doing their due diligence on signing a lease has to be thinking about those things. You have to be thinking about your square footage, how much square footage is usable, usable square footage, how much equipment are you going to have within the space, what the equipment is going to look like during the layout phase, how many people can you accommodate on the floor during the different layouts that you go through. So I don't think it's not thought about. I just don't think the business model is necessarily founded on maximizing profitability based on your square footage, based on keeping people within a certain amount of square footage like F45, like Barry's Bootcamp, like Orange Theory are, because you're not necessarily, and what Stu was talking about yesterday when you guys did your webinar, Stu was talking about maximizing profitability from keeping people and keeping people within a certain box within the gym without having them create traffic across the gym, walk around, having all the equipment in one space. And yeah, I can see that how that could lead to a model that kind of replicates or looks like F45 or Barry's Bootcamp or Orange Theory in terms of how you're going to create profitability. But I also don't want to discount the fact that there are a lot of functional training businesses, including ours, including a lot of other gyms out there who have achieved very high levels of profitability. Let's talk about an outs, uh, notwithstanding COVID right now. But there are a lot of really successful gyms that allow people to have kind of free reign as they walk around the space and not necessarily be contained to just a box. I don't think that those people, I'm going to assume, went into it wantonly and just said, I'm going to you know, get this humongous space and I'm going to put crazy amounts of gear. And I'm sure there's some dummies out there who did that 
or the opposite. I'm going to get this tiniest, tiniest little space. And I'm going to be overburdened right away by having too little space for too many athletes. I do think it's part of the planning process. I do think that you can have a very successful business without being so maniacal about, oh, my athletes are going to stay within this box. Um, but even we, you know, the way that we look at square footage, like we talked about, you want a hundred members per thousand square feet. So we kind of are taking it in consideration. Yeah, I think the, the question that, you know, me and Jason were talking about on the call, though, is how many gym owners in the space are, are really thinking about it that way. And I think that that's where, you know, it's really missing. I, I, I agree with everything. I don't think that, you know, the way to do it and, and obviously the success that we've had with our, our programming at our locations and collective gyms that use it, you don't need to get rid of the squat rack. You don't need to get rid of a pull-up bar in order to be successful, right? Like those are things that Stu has done that's interesting, but it's definitely really far in one direction. With that said, you know, I think that, you know, the GHDs is the perfect example. That's something that we do, right? Like we don't program GHD sit-ups often because we recognize that that is a very big, bulky piece of equipment, doesn't have a lot of different uses. It's kind of very specific. So we don't use it at our location. So it isn't programmed in a program that often. So I do think that, and the example I brought up to Jason, you know, I get on the phone, maybe less now than I used to, but with multiple gym owners that are interested in our service. And I got to tell you, 90% of the gym owners, coaches that I talk to, I always feel like the conversation is, you know, what cycles, you know, what about your program is going to, and it almost feels like not even is going to help my athletes be fitter. It almost feels like the conversation is going to help me be fitter. Like it almost feels like they're looking at it in terms of, you know, how is this going to, you know, get me PRs. I never get questions about, you know, Hey, the session plans, like, are you guys thinking about the flow? Are you guys thinking about, you know, the time to break down the things that we do actually really, really well and put a lot of time and effort. And I think makes our product unique to everything else out there. It's never top of mind for the types of questions that I get. It's always about like, what are your macro cycles, your, 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 um, macro cycles, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it's interesting because I really don't think it's top of mind for a lot of gym owners. I would agree with that. Um, I think that we're, we're kind of, we're kind of talking about two different things at once, but I want to clarify, there are some successful gyms out there that do have large amounts of GHDs in their gym. There are gyms that do it that CrossFit New England's one of them. You know, they had eight GHDs, it takes up a lot of space, but they also had tons of members and they had a lot of packed classes. Could they have better optimized their space by not having GHDs? Yeah, maybe, but also you'd be changing the experience for the athletes. I also think that that's a little bit of an outlier situation. In general, I agree with the GHD uh, decision of not having them, especially if you have a smaller space, especially if you're just starting out, because they do take up a lot of space. They are very expensive. They're not utilized in the programming all too much, especially if you're kind of coming into this with more of like a beginner type of community you're probably not going to get the bang for the buck out of them. But I think that that's more of like a holistic conversation about, all right, do I understand the utility of this device and where am I at in my journey right now? And maybe down the road, yeah, I want to get a bigger facility or my members are more educated or I want to implement in a way that we're going to use it more often. Can we have them? Can they be effective? Yes. But in terms of what you're saying about owners talking to you about the NC Fit Collective and the value proposition and then 
the meaning behind the programming. This is also, and, and you know, Jason talks about this a lot. When coaches go out there on the floor, they try sometimes to hide behind complexity of their teaching or complexity of movements in which they're going to try to impress the class with. They have to utilize that to create some sort of wow factor to the members because they're not confident enough in their own coaching ability to coach the fundamentals or coach the basics or even coach mid-level movements with a really high prior, uh, propriety and a really high level of enthusiasm. So they take these things like the dumbbell or squat uh, barbell snatch, and they try to make them really, really flowery. They use all this language. They go into a dissertation about the Olympic lifts. They start talking about what coach Mike Bergner says versus what the a Russian uh, you know, federation says. about. Nobody gives a fuck. And here's when you break down, when you're talking about programming, it's the same deal with owners. They want to hide behind this complexity of these fancy things like mesocycles and macrocycles and microcycles and, you know, thinking that the programming got to be really, really fancy. Well, I'm going to tell you, folks, if you're talking about GPP, general physical preparedness, what you're looking for a program, you're looking for a program that's thought out from a year long perspective. You want to think about the overall goals of the program. Is the programming from a year long perspective lining up to meet the athlete's goals into whatever that means for you in GPP? Then from a month to month perspective, do the monthly focuses, how you're going to slightly angle the program because nothing's going to change from a drastic perspective. How do those months come together? And then how, when you're formulating weeks, how do the weeks come together? And then day to day, how does that expression all come together to make a really well-rounded program? Now, if you wanted to program in a more cycled type of way, you certainly could. It's just fundamentally different. Do I think it's absolutely necessary? No, I don't think it's necessary. I think a lot of the conversation about macro cycles and mesocycles, it's superfluous. It's to hide behind really not necessarily understanding how to make your product on the floor really amazing. And even probably not really fully understanding what really well-programmed GPP, general physical preparedness looks like. Bro, is your computer on your knees right now, by the way? When you get excited, the computer moves and I, it's, <laughs> I'm in a Jeep. I'm driving over <laughs> Dude, it some looks, terrain. <laughs> it looks like you're on the terrain. Um, it's hey, on my knees. You know, it is interesting though. Uh, I mean, we're talking about this profitability from programming perspective. I think the GHG conversation is interesting. I do think each owner needs to make their own decisions on this, but at least be aware of it. And bigger isn't always better, which we talk about with the square footage. If you want to have giant spaces, it's not necessarily the best use of your expense and there's a lot more overhead in terms of cleaning and whatnot and it starts to kind of distribute the community across how big is too big depends where you're at too right with the expense of the space if you have you know lower cheaper rent you might be able to get away with having additional areas where you have jerk boxes and ghds but in an area where rent is more expensive you got to really try and optimize those areas speaking of which this is interesting i saw that the 2028 olympics are not going to have olympic lifting in that have you seen that Wow. I, I, and really boxing. But yeah, I, the Olympic weightlifting thing kind of threw me for – I'm trying to get my head around it, Gabe. I mean, I, I was looking it up. I still can't quite wrap my head around it. Do you have the full story on that? It's literally called Olympic lifting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's literally – yeah. Um, well, I mean, all these decisions around the Olympics have been super weird, and I, I, I don't really understand them because – didn't they get rid of wrestling last time? And like wrestling is like, like that was the original like Olympic sport. 
Like that yep. was like, that's been around since like the days of ancient Greece. It just like, that didn't really make sense of that going away. Um, and then I also like was confused of like baseball went away, which I didn't have a problem with, but then it like, it also can come back. So it's just, it's, it's interesting how they pick things that like are taken off of the Olympics, but they can also like come back. Um, I, I, I have no idea like who's making these decisions and it has anything to do with the host country, but the Olympic weightlifting thing. I saw that yesterday. Um, forgot where I saw it. And yeah, super weird and a bummer because I feel like that's the big stage for a lot of Dude. these athletes. So the bar Ben did an article on it. I'm looking at it right here. And uh, the Olympics, if I'm not mistaken, they're in L.A. Um, it, I could be wrong on that. But it says amid, you know, shifting leadership and accusations of corruption, the IWF uh, has taken steps in improving. It's going to, it seems to me like there's some politics like in terms of like the governing bodies of these um but i, I want to dig into this a little bit more it, it, i'm going to look into it more and talk to some people who are more aware of the situation because it just is super sad for these athletes who are looking to really train for that particular stage and now it's just gone it's just very odd to me especially since it's been there for you know 100 plus years or whatever well, it's been. and arguably at the peak of its popularity you know like um yep. Uh, a, a lot of people shit on CrossFit and functional training for being wanton and reckless and not being their cup of tea, but you cannot fucking argue that CrossFit and functional training brought powerlifting, weightlifting, uh, Olympic lifting and weightlifting, same, you can use those terminologies interchangeably, rowing, biking, jumping rope, odd object equipment, all of that stuff got brought back into the forefront because of the popularization of functional training. And if you're going to remove Olympic lifting, why wouldn't you remove it in like the 80s or the 90s when nobody was fucking doing it? Now you have tons of young people across the entire world. You know, you have obviously fantastic lifters in, you know, the, the Eastern Bloc. You have fantastic lifters in Asia. You got people in Australia. You got people in South America, Latin America, United States all participating. Why would you remove it now? It makes yeah. no sense. And boxing too. I mean. Is, gonna, is there is there yeah. a reason is there a reason given? It just says, uh, you know, uh, according to this one, it's like because I skimmed Did IWF board of weightlift. It, it just it just seems to be that uh, the news is announced boxing. Uh, da -da -da. Not really. I mean, it says international weightlifting federations uh, specifically must work toward compliance and effective change of culture. Furthermore, they must successfully address a historical incident incidents yeah, so of doping in the sport and ensure the integrity uh, and full independence of anti-doping programs. So that was, I guess, the reason given. Yeah, I, I remember skimming and I thought that that's what it was. It's just it's one of the sports where it seems like it's been toughest for countries themselves to kind of police the cleanness of the sport. You know, I think ever since Icarus, by the way, amazing movie. If anyone hasn't watched it, highly recommend um, you know, just how rampant, um, performance enhancing drugs is in that sport. And I guess how much it impacts it, like maybe that's it, but. Well, let me ask you a question. What Olympic sport do we think is clean? <laughs> like, whoa, so, way, to flip real. The, way to flip the script. Right Who is there. clean going to the so, Olympics? So apparently, apparently like the Russians that got caught in like literally state sponsored doping for all sports do it for all sports except figure skating because for figure skating it is actually detrimental 
you need pliability, flexibility, mobility. But you know what's interesting about but that literally token. only one, the only one, one. But you know, I, it depends also. Like, and I'm not an expert on this. And I'd be interested actually to talk to somebody about this. Is that uh, there's so many different forms of performance enhancing drugs. And so originally when I was thinking about steroids, this is like 10 years ago, you would think about something that really puts on muscle mass, this and that. But now, right, you have um, all different types of, you have, uh, what, blood, there's, there's so blood many doping. different, blood, there's so many different uh, types of uh, testosterone boosters. And, and, you know, I mean, if you look at these people get popped at the CrossFit Games, like every single time, it's for something, it seems like something different. It doesn't seem like it's just a traditional steroid that you've maybe heard of in the past. And so I wonder for all these different sports, if they've actually created performance enhancing drugs that carry over well to that particular sport, for example, cycling and endurance and throwing more white blood cells in there, uh, verse, maybe they're not trying to take on the same thing of building massive amounts of muscle. I'm not sure if it's white blood cells, might be red blood, red blood cells, but, uh, need that immunity though. White blood cells are always on my mind because of leukemia. So anyways, yeah. The, the thing that's interesting, we might've mentioned this in one of the other podcasts, you know, people like Tiger Woods and people in the major league baseball, they've had LASIK eye surgery to improve their vision, to improve their performance, right? So is that a performance enhan- enhancing procedure? Should that be banned or allowed? And I, you start to think about these types of things. Why are we so obsessed or why do we care so much that people are clean when doing these sports, I'm not saying that I'm an advocate. Juice them up, Juice doing them steroids. Up. <laughs> but wasn't the most exciting time in baseball when you were watching Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa literally hit the leather off of the ball as it was sailing 500 feet out of the park? Like, did you ever watch how powerful those guys were during that home run season, the season that essentially saved baseball? Well, the thing that drilling balls out of the park. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that. I, you know, as a, as a society, and I've heard a lot of people talk to this about baseball. The thing is people want to have like, you know, they don't want to see the, the, the man behind the curtain per se, mm-hmm. like they want it to be happening, but they don't want it to know. They want to feel that, Hey, this is super clean. These are like superhero athletes that are doing it out of hard work. And that's it. It's as soon as that veil is lifted, that people kind of feel like they're involved and dirty. Um, so I think that it, it's really that it's people kind of want to be, you know, what is it? Um, we just want to tell ourselves a story. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but where I mean, do you that, draw the line? It, it gets really weird, right? Because if you don't regulate it, this is like such a complicated conversation, right? Cause if you don't regulate it at all, uh, then you could have anomalies that people get on everything as humanly possible. And then, so you kind of got to be one way or another, right? You can't be kind of like, eh, well, that one's cool. But that one's not like, you have to be all in, like, for example, um, uh, like take bodybuilding, um, you know, you have essentially the, 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 the major bodybuilders, like it's just a known fact that people are on performance enhancing drugs and it's okay. It's just kind of a part of that sport, but then you have other types of bodybuilding where that is not allowed. And it's a, a quote clean version and people look a lot different. So at what point do you say the sport is clean or not clean? And then there's varying degrees in the middle that make it awkward, you know, like, I don't know, like Ricky Gerard actually just, uh, just actually won his first event at the Dubai championships. And he's coming off, uh, I think a two year ban from CrossFit because yeah. of, uh, performance enhancing drugs. Yeah. It's super interesting, but you know, people always want to root for a hero or the underdog and, you know, 
cheating or the veil of cheating just kind of ruins that. Um, yeah. I think it's a lot, of, like you said, though, it's a lot about our preconceived notions or our perceptions of this. Like I personally, I don't, I, I when Jason was saying before, is like, well, what if they took everything under the sun? Well, who cares? Like, it, would it really matter? Like, are we talking about worrying about the health of the athlete or are we talking about worrying about feeling good that these guys are doing these amazing things without any sort of supplementation? And then if you start to get into supplementation, like we said with LASIK eye surgery, where do you draw the line? Do you draw oh, the yeah. line at like you can't take additional protein powder or you can't take pre-workout or X, Y, or Z? And the lines that are drawn and like Jason alluded to are very, very arbitrary and they kind of differ uh, based on the sport. And I think CrossFit and don't quote me on this, but CrossFit very famously has done all of their own drug testing. They, they are in charge of the whole selection process. I heard it's not an independent body that is doing the selection of who's getting tested and when I believe that that's all internal. And it was at one time, if it's changed recently, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're put on a drug list and then they utilize an outside source that's consistent with, if I'm not mis mistaken, like NCAA type stuff to then randomly test people. Um, from my experience in CrossFit, I thought the drug testing process was pretty professional and well done. Uh, that was just my, my experience. Now, I can't speak to it today, um, but that was what but it was. Can you have a fair process if the organization that's sanctioning the events is involved in who gets tested and selecting who gets tested. That's essentially the question they're asking. Like at some point there's bias, right? You're, you're looking at your field of athletes and you're going, well, let's test that guy. Let's test that guy. Let's test that guy. Mm -hmm. Is that really random? Shouldn't the organization be completely pulled out of it and have a third party come in and just go, we are completely unbiased. We're testing whoever we want. Could be everybody. Could be nobody. Could be 10 people. I think that that's an interesting discussion too. And yeah, whatever they want. Yeah. There's definitely some people that if for whatever reason they got popped, right, like it would be significantly detrimental to the sport. So what's the incentive to, you know, really try and test those people versus, you know, having, you know, some 40 year old age group championship scapegoats to be like, hey, we're enforcing this. But like, does anyone care that like some masters are getting popped? I'm not saying that that's why. That's why I feel like, you know, whenever I see that athletes are testing positive, I feel like it's always like, you know some like, you know, master's division, or it could be the master's division. Cause you look at some of those people and I'm like, how the heck <laughs> dude, do some the master's division like that? might dude. as well be called the TRT game. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep in mind. Get the fuck out of here with these masters. Hey, some of the, I mean, dude, uh, you should, we should note though, if you hit the podium, oh, right. The you are getting games, you are getting tested, right? So if you're hitting the podium, you are getting tested, but you do know when you're going to be tested. I mean, you know, I, I've had it where I've hit the podium in CrossFit. Literally, you cannot take any drink. You cannot, you cannot take anything from anybody from the moment you win, like from the moment you finish your event. It's weird. It's like they have someone actually escort you from the moment you finish your event. You're not allowed to accept anything from anybody directly to the bathroom to then have a really awkward moment. And then they bring you back out. So um, just well, testosterone is a weird one though, because if yeah, you, testosterone is a, a naturally occurring hormone and some people have naturally higher levels of it. Some people have naturally lower levels of it. You know, there are medical exemptions that you can get for having low T, right? You're actually on doctor's orders because it's impacting your health and stuff like that. But like, I believe the way that they have to test for testosterone is you have to establish 
like a number of baseline tests over the course of a period of time and then continue to test on that to see if there's any sort of humongous variations in what those numbers look like. I have no idea whether or not that's happening or not, whether or not that happens in the master's division. I have no, no idea either, but it's just interesting to think about because you're putting something into your body that already exists into your right. body. And there's not really a way to tell the difference between the synthetic version and the naturally occurring. Well, and the argument that you're bringing up or, or the conversation you're having MDV is like, do we really care? I think is really uh, like the future I'm curious about is like, where are sports going to go? Cause you know, technology is going to continue to enhance and these athletes hypothetically could be dosed with th things. That is, it's going to be very difficult for the anti-doping agencies to keep up with all of the technology that can be developed to enhance athletes. So at what point is it kind of I don't know. I, I do think there's something though, where there's subjectiveness, like where one thing is kind of cheating and another thing isn't, for example, LASIK eye surgery, I think is a really interesting one. Like, dude, I mean, if you can't see without glasses and you want, I mean, are glasses in uh performance enhancing? I mean, that doesn't, that seems stupid. Right. But what if your vision is like only uh marginally poor and like you could improve it to be superhuman. You could go from like whatever it is, uh, less than 2020, you can go to 2010 vision, which is like better than the best. Yeah, that that's right. Because that's kind of the controversy with baseball players is that there is actually, um, a group of, you know, at, at least I've read that get that surgery and it's not to get back to 2020, 20 is like 20 is like the average, but there's always better than average. Um, and you can actually get LASIK to have like better vision than average, which actually, a vast majority of baseball players naturally have that. So some try and get that by means of surgery. And it's, that's kind of that gray area, right? Like, are you performance enhancing by doing that? Yeah. And how is that, how is that different than, you know, making your, your biceps bigger so you can hit yeah, balls but, out of the park? But Gabe, are you, are you on performance enhancing drugs? Because you take cold plunges and, 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 you know, uh, I mean, at what point, I mean, cause you do so many things to improve your body, right? Yeah. Um, vitamins to this and that it's just a very complicated thing right if it's synthetic then is that is that performance enhancing but if it's natural then it's okay i don't know yeah there's always there's so much gray area and going back to the kind of blood doping and epo thing i recently uh, i forgot what podcast i was listening to but they still don't have a real like way to even test for that at all like so much for like the Lance Armstrong days and like, you know, like him getting popped and then cleaning up the sport. Like there's still no like way that you can 100% say, Hey, you've been blood doping. Like the, the idea of having like a, what do they call it? Like a biological passport where they're taking, you know, like your blood cell count uh, counts numerous times to be able to track that hasn't been instilled because it's kind of like this weird controversial thing. So Unless they literally catch you in the act, blood doping, which a lot of cyclists do, which for people that don't know, is you actually take your blood when you're recovered and it's super high red blood count. And in grueling events like the Tour de France, where by the third week you're like completely depleted, you literally take your own blood that's been sitting in a freezer that you took out during the off season, put it right back into you, which is not putting anything synthetic into your body. It's literally taking your blood and putting it back in at a time when you're really depleted kind of gives you a boost in that last week. And there's, there's still no way to test for that because you're literally just taking your own blood and putting it back in. So it's yeah. interesting because that's like been, you know, universally considered cheating in, in, in the cycling world. 
And there's no way to tell unless they literally like catch you in the act. And there's apparently during like big tours, like the tour de France, there's like, you know, like buses break down and they like, you know, have to stay an extra couple hours on the side of the road. And that's like where these shady things happen. <laughs> well, throughout history, you know, the, the cheating has always outpaced the controls. That's just the incentive for the athlete coming into the arena is right. to figure out a way to perform the absolute best that they can. And if there's any sort of significant, whether or not it's uh, way back in the day, like your fucking life is on the line because you're a gladiator going into the, uh, the arena or there's significant amount of uh, power or money or prestige on the line, the natural human incentive there is to figure out a way to beat the system. So cheating is always going to be multiple steps ahead of the approach of the control. Yeah. I mean, like think about like an IV, I, IV always, that one's always interesting to me, right? Because if you're like really messed up from an event, you get an IV, is that cheating? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, if you, if someone was like really fucked up and they had, they're having heat stroke and they needed to have an IV, but then they were able to then go perform the next event at the CrossFit Games. Where does that draw the line? Um, I got an interesting question for you guys. You know, and we're kind of talking about cheating and the supplementation, these elements of supplementation, but the business that we're all in, the functional training business, group, group community fitness business, what are your guys' opinions on supplementation for everyday athletes? The people who are, you know, nine to five workers or, you know, stay at home moms, stay at home dads, or people who are just normal people who are looking to utilize fitness to enhance their lifestyle. How do you think about or talk about things like protein supplementation, pre-workout, post-workout, and all the other stuff that's on the list? Oh man, this is a topic for, for another hour here. Don't get me going. I, I think that supplements definitely serve a purpose. I just think that for too many people, it's this like, you know, excuse for not handling a lot of things the right way. You know, I think that there's a lot of ways to get the vitamins, the minerals, to feel energized before a workout, to recover after a workout, all the things that supplements are supposed to do that you can and should be doing by just doing the right things that aren't as sexy and don't taste as good. And, you know, your favorite athletes aren't promoting on Instagram. And I think that that's where people get tripped up a lot the amount of money people are spending on all these things instead of, you know, if you're dragging coming into the gym and you need, you know, two scoops of pre-workout, you know, what's your sleep look like? You know, what are you, what are you doing at night to get good night's sleep? Um, you know, just little things like that, that I think people think that these products are shortcuts, but with that said, you know, our food now looks very different than what our food looked like 20, 30 years ago. Like even if you're eating, you know, what we would say a whole foods, well-balanced diet, you know, unless you're getting super high quality produce from, you know, a local farm, like our fruits and vegetables now just don't have a lot of the micronutrients that they used to even 30 years ago. And this is pretty well-established science. So for things like magnesium, for things like, you know, especially a lot of minerals and vitamins, our food just isn't cutting it anymore. So in that case, like you can definitely make the case that, you know, a good multivitamin, a good magnesium supplement is, is beneficial for a lot of people that have deficiencies. So, you know, that's kind of a, a, a oversimplistic way to say it really depends. Um, but there's a lot of money that I think is being wasted on things that aren't helping people. And if anything, are giving them this false sense of, well, I got my basis covered because, you know, I'm, I'm taking this meal replacement shake, or I'm taking this mm -hmm. multivitamin. So it doesn't matter if I don't get all my greens because I'm taking this greens powder. 
So. I'd be really interested, and I don't know if this data exists. Like you said, it's pretty well established in science. I haven't seen it, but I would be interested to see like, hey, let's look at modern fruits and vegetables and let's look at fruits and vegetables or when they were able to actually with some sort of degree of scientific certainty you know test those things and see what the nutritional profile i'd be really interested to see like oh this is a carrot from 2020 and this is a carrot from 1975 or like whatever 1950 if you can go back that far and see whether or not the differences are really actually material or is it kind of incremental are they are the differences in you know, how they're actually raised or are they farm raised and stuff like that. I think that that's really interesting. So I can send you some stuff because this was actually really big marketing material that we used at, at Pure Farm at Puri, um, especially for like the magnesium supplement that we sold. And I, I can't remember like what the exact sources of them were, but they did have like this data from, I think it was the seventies for like tomatoes, onions, carrots, specifically on some of the mineral content compared to now. Um, but again, the question there is like, what were those sources in? Are they looking at supermarket versus supermarket? Are they looking at, you know, farm versus supermarket? Like there's a lot of other things that have changed through the 30 years. So how much of it is really applicable to, you know, maybe someone that's been shopping at the same supermarket for the past 20 years, how different do those look? So it's interesting. If you read the book, like Wheat Belly, for example, I read that maybe five years ago or whenever it came out. I don't know if you guys read that, but they talk about how wheat is different today than it was, you know, a hundred years ago. And in particular, they, they take an evaluation on how wheat is different in the United States versus in areas of Europe. That's why some people who have like a, a intolerance, not necessarily celiac disease, which is a little bit different, obviously, but just people who wheat in general messes with their gut. They've done a, you know, they've analyzed the wheat proteins or the wheat product built in, you know, United States versus like back in the day. And from a molecular level, they did an analysis on it. And it's just, it's a lot different. Like they, they actually see a difference between the wheat because what's happened has been genetically modified to grow from, let's just say X amount of bushels on an acre to 10 X that. And as they've gone through that process is reduced the, the, the nutritional benefits and then change the actual buildup of the wheat. Uh, I found that to be an interesting book in that perspective. Um, something I've been, you know, doing, obviously I, I like turmeric. I think it's cool. You can find it all over the place, but I think turmeric has helped me. I feel like it reduces my inflammation. I feel like it makes me feel better. I have been finding, I've just been getting more aches and pains in the last like year or two. Maybe it's because I just still crush my workouts too much. I need to focus a little more on recovery. Uh, I don't stretch at all. I probably should. Um, And then I've been adding in micro factor um, from first form lately for a while. And I like it because it has like the antioxidants, the multivitamins, the probiotics, all that kind of stuff in it, all kind of built into one. That's what I'm doing currently. Um, I don't really mess with too much other stuff. My pre-workout is a cup of coffee and I get fired up probably as it is. I think, you know, something to remember if you're a coach out there and you're listening to this discussion and you have really strong opinions about, you know, what people should or shouldn't take. Let me just caution anybody who's listening. You should never make a member feel bad or call them out about taking something that you don't agree with. Maybe the first thing that you should do is have number one is do your research, really be well-informed, but also have a conversation with that person to figure out what their goals are. But ultimately you have to respect what that person is putting into their own body, because as much as you think that you have license to tell that person to stop, you don't. If that person wants to take a pre-workout powder 
and they understand what's in it and they understand some of the, maybe the downsides, but also the, the, the pros of that, it's not your place to tell them not to take it. And you know, similarly, I've seen, you know, coaches talk to athletes about protein supplementation and, you know, after a workout, taking a, a post-workout protein shake and telling people that, oh, instead of your protein shake, like, why don't you go eat a piece of chicken? Yeah. In a fucking ideal world, you're going and eating a piece of chicken obviously is going to have a similar protein profile. You're getting animal protein. It's a complete amino acid, all that kind of good stuff and all the vitamins and minerals that you would get from that. But also who wants to eat a piece of chicken right after you finished a workout? Maybe that can't eat for a while. (laughs) Maybe that person just enjoys the taste of the protein and they like the fact that they're getting it into their diet and they're able to drink some water and they feel good about hitting their protein number easily. And they don't want to have that kind of full feeling that you have after eating eight to 10 ounces or six to 10 ounces of chicken. Just be smart about that. You don't have to railroad anybody or throw them under the bus. Have a conversation if you want to talk to that person. Hey, that pre-workout conversation though. Hey, if it works for them, it works for them. I, I was working at the traditional gym. This is years ago. I was probably like 16 at the time. And this vendor comes in with a Jack 3D, I think was just getting popular. It was one of those ones like made your core temperature like increase. And I remember this, this, they were sampling this product and oh my God, this guy took it. And uh, it, I don't know if it was Jack, it was one of those. And this guy took it and like 10 minutes later, he's on the treadmill and he starts freaking out. We actually had to call the ambulance because his heart rate elevated so much because he wasn't used to like the caffeine and whatever else was in that. And he was probably running on the treadmill like he always is used to, but he's never had a pre-workout that was this strong. And we had to call the ambulance. And uh, anyways, that was just a pre-workout story for you. Yeah, that's not a good look for the vendor. Jeez. Not a good look for the vendor. And not a good look for the gym either, right? Because yeah. And, yeah. and you try and set the tone when people would walk in, but that's a great lesson where like at the time, you know, I'm a 16-year-old kid. I wasn't the vendor. But the, you know, the vendor was probably some other, you know, young guy just trying to hustle and didn't right. realize like, hey, this guy's like 50 something years old, 6 years old. He's about to go run. Maybe he shouldn't be taking like this blue whatever this is, um, or at least be warned about the byproduct of it. I used to walk into Gold's Gym when I was in college. I would go into Gold's Gym every day, get the bottle of Ripped Fuel out of the fridge. I don't even know if Ripped Fuel was like – this stuff was so powerful and so you get potent. Ripped. I, probably not. But <laughs> your heart rate was like ripping through your chest. I remember taking this stuff, and I was on Mars when I would drink this thing. I just remember it would look like – it looked like literally a bottle of chemicals that somebody stole out of a laboratory and then just put a, a cap on. Um, but I, I didn't know any better at the time. It tasted good. It also made me really jacked up for my workout, but I don't take rip fuel anymore. No, oh, man. I remember the first time I took beta alanine and like your face gets all itchy. That was a weird experience. I took that for a while, but yeah, that's a weird feeling when like yeah. your face literally gets tingly. Well, that was the, the famous supplement that Matt Frazier had mentioned when he went on Joe Rogan. Oh yeah. yeah and sales uh, went up 2000% beta alanine sales. I've, I've, never, I've never, I don't think I've ever tried that before. I don't really mess around with too much stuff back in the day. Maybe when I was in high school, I would be more open to it. Um, but I don't really. Yeah. Interesting thing about beta alanine though. It doesn't raise your heart rate or anything. There's actually same to creatine. There's like pretty good established, like non-controversial science that it's a, it's a pretty good performance enhancing substance that like your body makes naturally. So having a little boost to it is, you know, not seen as, but again, 
going back to how we started the conversation, like if your body's not producing a certain amount, like, is it performance enhancing to then, you know, supplement it with extra? I don't know. But anyway, where do you guys think uh, gym owners should draw the line on what they sell as supplements or uh, even snacks in the gym or kind of uh, post-workout or pre-workout drinks like water or coconut water or any of the other drinks that are out there. Do you guys have an opinion on generally where that line is, or do you think it's kind of like the cheating conversation where it's a little arbitrary and some things are in, some things are out? I think it should be authentic to the owner and the staff there. You know, something I think that we've learned over the years is that if it was something that we would like, I go in our gyms and I'll buy a perfect bar. And then I'll buy a water or, and I know you will too, MDV, like, uh, or the O2s, right? Those are good. Um, I think if it's something that we would do, let's do it. If it's not something we're very interested in, um, I don't think it has its place at the gym because it's unauthentic to who we are. That's just my perspective. So for us, you know, we have our reds, our greens, the multi-factor, maybe a protein. And then you have your waters, your O2s, maybe some Kill Cliff and Perfect Bar. That's what fills up our refrigerators at our gyms. And I feel good about it. We're not going to have, you know, Sprite and, and we're not going to have, uh, you know, some crazy C4 craziness, uh, supplements because that's also not what we do. Now, that being said, if we did take those and we, we saw value in them, we'd sell them. One of the things that's becoming popular right now, and I don't know if we mentioned this on a previous podcast, but this idea of intro workout. So during your workout, <laughs> the Skittles. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Did yeah, we talk yeah. about no, this already? Yeah, we did. None, none of that. We, talk about we don't Skittles? Need- we, we wouldn't need- sell Skittles behind the front desk, would we? No, we don't need to sell Skittles, you know, but I mean, Hinshaw, he has some good stories about, you know, being in the middle of really long distance workouts and then chugging some Coke or whatever. But I mean, at a traditional functional training gym where the workouts last somewhere between 12 and 20 minutes, I don't think you really need to, you know, double down with any type of uh, carb, carb, carb load, you know? I remember for a while when the inter-workout, inter-workout carbs got super popular, you started seeing like um, Kool-Aid or high C or like, you know, like those drink mixes and people's cubbies at the gym. And I remember at the time, like, we were like, what are people doing? Like, what are you doing? Dude, I did that marathon half marathon row at the CrossFit games one time. And I prepared for it with Hinshaw and he, man, he had me sugared up. I mean, I can't remember exactly what I had, but it was like, uh, I had like the goo and stuff, but then just kind of like, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think it was sugar packets, but it was basically similar, like a pixie stick, essentially in the middle of this thing, just to give you an instant burst of just carb push. Um, I think Froning actually, if I'm not mistaken, he kept it in his pocket and he had like a, a Snickers or something. So by the time he actually pulled it out, it was like a, a warm Snickers he ate in the middle of his, it was something along those uh, lines, but in that particular setting, it made sense. But outside of that, I don't really mess with it. That's the thing, man. Like you are at the CrossFit games doing an event that's going to be, you know, whatever it was, 75 to 90 minutes of, of really intense cardio. Like that is very unique circumstances, you know, like gym member, John, that's going to come in and, you know, do the scaled version of Cindy probably doesn't need to have, you know, high C in his bottle for, you know, what he's going to do at minute 10 of a 20 minute AMRAP. Um, I think that that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the big difference, you know, sugar, it's really simple. And I feel like people make it a little bit more complicated than it is, you know, like the amount of activity you're doing and how lean you already are, are the two things that kind of determine like how much carbohydrate you like need. And 
I forgot who put it in these terms, but I, I, it's, it's, that's how you earn the carbohydrates that you can eat, like how lean you already are and how much like work you're doing. So people can use that and kind of realize that like, you know, there are going to be some maybe other athletes that you see that are doing these things, but they're probably doing it because they're training two, three times a day and they're already super lean. Like they've almost earned the fact that they need to start off the day with a bagel and have intra workout carbs. And that's just the kind of stuff that I see. Like, you know, if you follow some YouTubes of some of like the games athletes, like that's how these people are eating because they need to. But for most people, like you're just, you're just not there yet. And, you know, your carbs should be coming from things that also have a lot of fiber and a lot of micronutrients like fruit, like starchy vegetables, as opposed to the really simple carbs that athletes need, because, you know, they're not going to get the type of fuel they need for their training sessions off of, you know, bananas and celery sticks. They need something that's just kind of a more, you know, calorie dense version. Celery Most sticks. people, you know, probably need some celery sticks. I know the quote you're referring to, I forget who it's attributed to. I, forget, I think yeah. the person is featured in Tim Ferriss's book. Um, uh, what's the book called? The the real thick one yeah, about the Titans. Uh, t- tools tools of Titans. Of Titans. I, I think the person is featured in that. The actual quote, though, is you need to have the thickness of the type of skin that um, uh, a biological male has on their sex sex organ on your belly before you start to introduce tons of carbohydrates into your diet. That was the, that was the terminology and the phraseology that that person used. I'm not saying that I agree with it, but he's talking about having thin enough skin on your belly and a low enough body fat percentage to start utilizing carbohydrate as a supplemental resource for energy. There's a lot of different opinions on this. That's not my opinion. I don't subscribe to that. Uh, but that was his, uh, take on it. <laughs> now we got to go look that up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you can look it up after yeah. the, after yeah, the yeah, I'm going to go Google that. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, what's up? Well, I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that's been on my mind a lot lately is this idea of like, you know, recovery and like, you know, now that essentially my training is every single day, I'm doing something from the NC fit app, obviously, because the programming is amazing and I love the fact that we have options, um, but really kind of like picking what I'm doing based off the fact that like some days I really like want and feel like I should like go and get after it. And some days like, you know, I do want to do NC flex and not even do the conditioning. Like I just want to do stuff that's still going to be hard, but isn't going to be that type of like, you know, stressful hard. And, you know, with whoop being so popular and like there being now like a bunch of wearables that quote unquote HRV tell you how recovered you are. I'm curious what you guys do to kind of pick what you're going to do for training that day. Is it just how you feel in the morning? Is it like, do you even know what you're going to do training wise when you get there and warm up? And then you're like, eh, I might do this, might do that. Cause I know we all have days where we feel great and want to get after it. We also have days where, yes, we're definitely going to train, but like, it's not a, you know, do crazy NC Metcon workout type day. You know, I'll, I'll just add a note to that. I think that one of the factors that does contribute to that is uh, being surrounded by like-minded people. So at times, right, like yesterday, I was not, I, I was going to ha- have a great workout. So every morning, my schedule as of the last couple of months has been either a walk 
ruck walk by myself in the morning or as of the last like month or so every day Ava is doing it with me it's been fucking amazing um we typically now instead of being outside we actually do it in the garage uh I walk on the assault runner or she does and then she rides the c2 bike and we watch Gordon Ramsay's Uncharted which is a great show by the way uh and it just takes the mind off it 15 20 minutes done so that's part a uh then I'll I'll go into some type of like NC fit workout either in the gym or in my garage probably about 70% in the gym, 30% in the garage. And then uh, I'll combine that two, three days a week with jujitsu. But at times when I'm in the garage by myself or even in the gym by myself, dude, some days I just won't really feel it. And I'll, I'll, I'll lean more towards like a strength bias or, or NC flex or whatever it is. But if all of a sudden a friend comes over or a training partner, or I do it in a class environment, my psychological shifts from like, hey, I'm going to take a little lower key to getting after it. So that's one of the benefits of being surrounded by like-minded people. I just wanted to kind of highlight that and then MDV, and then I'll, I'll share what my thoughts are too. First of all, I'm generally super skeptical of the data that wearables are spitting out and telling oh. people about their level of recovery and whether or not they should do a high intensity workout today or a low intensity workout today. Let's just think about what kind of data that actually could be pulling from your body. So it's not drawing any blood. It's not getting your oxygenation levels, not getting anything like that. It's something that's attached to your wrist. That's getting your heart rate, maybe your body temperature, and maybe having some sort of indicator about movement. That really is all that that device is going to able to be pulling all of that data from. So well, and then it can, I, it can incorporate some sleep patterns and some other no, 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 but sleep, no, no, no. Sleep's all based on movement and your heart rate. It's not, it's not telling you anything else about your actual sleep cycles and stuff and like actual sleep study and breathing. It can't, there's no possible way it's, a, it's literally impossible because it's just attached to your wrist. It's not getting any sort of biological marker from any other substance or any other airway or anything else. So it's based on movement heart rate and maybe body temperature. I'm not even sure. Or there's a few, there's a, I think there's either. a few that do body temperature now. A yeah. few. For sure. But I'm telling you that the data that it spits out on recovery, on sleep, on HRV, on resting heart rate, it's all based off of those metrics. There's not anything else that's going on there. So I'm, I'm just skeptical in general. And the thing that I don't love about that is the psychological impact of that imperfect data and how it's going to impact somebody when they look at it and go, I feel like shit today, but this is telling me that I can have a great workout. On the opposite side, I feel great today, but this is telling me that I have a really low recovery and I probably shouldn't do much or I should take it a little easier, whatever. I don't like that spin that those devices put on it. I'm not a big wearable guy in general, um, but that's just my take on it. In terms of what I do for my own training, I, I go into it in thinking about, first of all, I do NC flex most of the time. Now it's just the program that I like to do. I have a lot of fun with it. I write the workouts, So I want to test the workouts. It's also a great supplement for me in terms of my goals, which are aesthetic based and jujitsu based. I do add additional conditioning in, I do do jujitsu three times a week and I will work in full body bodybuilding and functional strength in terms of deadlift, bench, squat, press, and some Olympic lifting, mostly cleans into that program like it's written. Uh, and that's how I choose my workouts, but that's where I'm at right now. 
The one thing I'll add about the wearables thing, because I did, I looked into this quite a bit, um, actually just last week, there's been a lot of research done on the ones that beam a little light. So um, like my watch does that. I don't use it for, this doesn't do HRV. It does heart rate and it's not, it's not good. Um, I use this mostly for GPS when I run, but for the ones that have the light beam, so Whoop is one of those, the data that it gets on heart rate is actually very, very pretty precise for it being a wearable as long as you're not moving. Once you're sweating and moving around in actual during workout, it, they're actually not very good. If you want heart rate data on those, the chest strap is still kind of the gold standard for that kind of stuff. Um, but with that said, HRV is just heart rate information. Like it is actually getting, so what HRV is, is how much time there is in between heartbeats. And the interesting thing is, and this is a little counterintuitive. So a low, a low HRV means that your heart rate's like a metronome very, very steady beats. Like it's one, one, one. Whereas a high HRV is that it's kind of like doing the Macarena. It's just all over the place. Like there isn't like a very steady beat. It'll like be quick two beats, then a long, then like one beat. Like it'll just look very erratic. And a high HRV is actually what you actually want because what that means is that your nervous system is responding more readily to the stresses that are coming in. So like, like even in like little micro instances, I'll be more stressed and less stressed and more stressed based on different stimuli that are coming in. And your heart should be able to adapt to that like in the instant. Hmm. If you're constantly having like a very metronome-like heart rate, hence low HRV, it means that your nervous system isn't as elastic per se, or isn't as responsive. And what that is supposed to be correlated with is that you're not very well recovered. So the way that whoop and these things are telling you how recovered you are is using really HRV is like the main thing. It does try and say that it uses how well you slept, but like MBV said, it can't actually tell if you're sleeping. Like you're not like when you go into a sleep study, like electrodes on your brain and like breathing, which would really tell you what's going on. What it's doing is measuring how much is your, how much are you moving and like your body temperature for some and your heart rate, like what your heart rate's supposed to do when you're in deep sleep, shallow sleep, so on and so forth. So it's making a lot of assumptions based off of heart rate data. It's not really saying, oh, this is how well you slept, which you know, you can make the argument of how advanced is the technology to really tell you that stuff. But the one thing that I would add based on everything I read is that for a lot of these devices, it is really getting what your HRV is. And there is pretty good science that, you know, high HRV means that you're recovered and pretty good to go. Low HRV means that you're kind of lagging and, you know, should probably take it easy. So that's Here's just a little tidbit on that. Here's interesting, uh, in particular with a whoop, uh, when Emily wears it, when she coaches multiple hours in a row, she could see her strain score go through the roof uh, after coaching for four hours in a given day. Uh, Frankie and I were having this conversation after I was coaching and just talking about how exhausted I get anytime I'm coaching. And I want to wear actually my Apple watch just to look at my average heart rate, just curious. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting indicator is just how much your heart rate and your strain score can go up when coaching multiple classes in a row because the level of engagement and the intention that's behind that. Um, I'm going to start messing around with my heart rate monitor and get back to you guys about, about some of that. But in regards to the workouts, you know, I think surrounding yourself, if you're not in the right, like, like yesterday, I did our NC Metcon 
workout. I did overhead squats and thrusters. I think it was, I think it was Metcon and, uh, it was tough, man. I don't know if I would have done it had I not been in a, a group environment. I, I don't know if I would have done it because I'm not a huge overhead squat guy, but man, once everybody else starts doing it, man, I just, I just, I catch the bug and I get after it. So there's something to be said about, about that, which I like. There's, there's definitely a motivation factor in terms of training with like-minded people training with people who are better than you training with people who are marginally not as fit as you who are chasing you the whole time. And, you know, I remember talking to James Hobart a long time ago and James was saying the most important aspect of his games training is just training with people who want to get after it, who are going to be fitter than him, who want to get after it, who are a little less fit than him and figuring out that balance of having somebody who you can be on their heels and somebody on your heels so you can constantly be moving in the right direction. I think that's a really beautiful way of thinking about, you know, the uh, type of intensity, if you want that type of experience that you can uh, bring to your workouts, you know, but in terms of like technology, the thing that gets me a little bit, not confused, but just a little bit like disappointed and thinking about where we're at is like, everything is so fucking reliant on like our phones. You got to have our phone like smashed up against our noses nonstop. And the human body is so much more technologically quote unquote advanced than anything that exists. The way that the human body works is absolutely beautiful. And to always be so reliant on something on our wrist or on our phone to tell us whether or not we feel good to me, is just a, this is an odd sign of the times, you know, I, and I'm a little bit hesitant in terms of technology in general. I don't want anything to do with the metaverse. I'm not going to be putting on any wearables to dive into fitness in the metaverse anytime soon. Um, but that's just where I'm at. Hey, so I mean, not to buy I, you VR glasses for Christmas, huh? Dude, I, no. I, I completely agree with you. And that's why, so two things that I've been experimenting with lately, and I'm always trying different crazy shit out. So I've been doing the, the cold plunges in the morning. One thing that I've noticed and that there's supposed to be some, you know, some actual mechanisms that this would make sense is I, every morning I wake up and I get into the cold plunge and before my workout, I also do a max effort dead hang because grip old school, baby. Grip strength on any given day is supposed to be a pretty good indicator on how recovered you are. And the two things that I've noticed is how easy I can tolerate the cold in the morning and how long I can dead hang pretty good correlates to how good I feel in terms of like getting after it. Um, So it's just been an interesting way where I do that in the morning. And if like, I can't handle two minutes of it, I kind of like know that like, you know, it might not be a day to like really, really push it. And then usually my dead hang isn't great. And then How on days where I feel, hang? um, so yesterday I did two minutes, which was pretty good for me. Usually I'm like closer to like a minute 15 on days where it doesn't feel great. I can usually do a minute 30 and then two minutes was the best that I've been able to do. I like that. That's cool. I like that idea. I, I need to start incorporating that. What, you know, one of the things that I've started with uh, Caden yesterday is I started a, just a, we're, we're working on his pull-ups, but one of the things that I started with him is a five minute assault bike test. I'm just really curious. Like I saw, yeah, yeah. I thought he can get, so I said, Hey man, I'll give you 10 bucks. If you can, <laughs> I, I was like, I'll give you 10 bucks. If you can get 40 calories right in five minutes. And I thought that that's like what eight, uh, yeah. Like give or take whatever a minute. I, I was pretty far off. I, I mean, he got 26 in five minutes, but I think that that's a, I'm going to keep up with you guys. I'll let you guys know how that progressed over the next like year. Well, how, old, how old is he? How much does he weigh? He's seven. He <laughs> weighs he's seven years old. Hey bro. No excuse. He can barely reach the pedals. <laughs> no. Hey, so he can barely reach the pedals. 
But here's the thing. I didn't push them like all crazy hard or anything. I'm like, hey, man, just give this a shot. Let me know what you think. And I didn't like yell. Like I didn't push them hard. I was just really curious. How many calories you can get in five minutes? We've never done it. I love that. I have two questions for you guys. So first of all, the, um, the max, the world record dead hang over under 10 minutes. What do you guys think? Oh, way over. These things always surprise me. So well, how say, high, Jay? Uh, 30 minutes. Gabe? I think it's over, but I, I'm assuming longer. because you said 10, it's close to 10. So I'm going to say 12. Oh, 16 minutes and three seconds set in, set in 2020. Oh, uh, man. And that doesn't sound like a tremendous amount of time because 15, 16 minutes is not a lot of time, but hanging from a pull-up bar is- That's, That sounds like a long time. Brutal. I just figured there'd be some rock climber out there who could dangle on that thing for days. Oh, there probably are more people out there. Uh, I don't know who the guy was. I think he was from Norway, but you know, guys like Alex Holland, who's the guy that you know free climbed the Great Wall, Grand Wall, whatever it's called. He probably has a pretty legit dead hang. The um, crap, the other question I was going to ask you guys, of all the minute-based tests on the uh, assault bike, one minute, two minute, five minute, 10 minute, 20 minute, those are like the kind of popular tests. Which one is the worst? Which one is the most brutal test when you're going after it for calories? I think like the... And I think this is one of the popular ones, but three minutes. And that just tends to be the time domain that is, that is just worse than anything like that, because like you, you, you have to sprint it, but it's like long, like you, it's too long to pick. It's too long not to sprint it and too short not to like, you know, kind of like pace it out. It's just that perfect, like distance. that's just so terrible. Yeah. I've also it's done like the 800 meter run. So long. Yeah, exactly. 800 meter run, you know, like is miserable. Cause if you could hit that, like, let's just say, slow two minutes i mean it's it's aggressive right i think that's the same thing with the assault bike somewhere between that two and three minute range for kaden again i just like for the for the record i think it's he is super like that kid who wants that kind of stuff but i did not like grind him on it i was just like hey man just i mean if you want to win 10 bucks you can win 10 bucks but uh i think two to three minutes uh mdv yeah, I, I would agree. I, we used to do the two-minute test at CrossFit New England um, quite a bit when we were doing some serious training. The other thing that I think in, you know, if somebody out there is listening to this, you know, try, try and go for two minutes relative to your own fitness level. Uh, don't have like an explosive cardiac event when you're getting after it, you know, take your time. The other thing I think is really tough is setting a average number of calories to hold for 10 minutes and hitting that number across each of the 10. So if you, if you say, all right, I think I'm going to try for 15 cals per minute, not that hard in the first two or three minutes, but holding 15 across for 10 minutes is very, very difficult. And incrementally, as you go up by one calorie, Night day. That, oh my God. Trying to hold 16 versus 15 is a, a, a completely it's, different It's like story. Tabata push-ups, right? Tabata push-ups, you start off, you're like, oh, yeah, dude, I'm getting 15. And then all of a sudden, by the time round six, seven, and eight come around, <laughs> it's not looking like 15 anymore. Same idea. Oh, man, it's so fascinating. The human body is so fascinating. But um, when you do tests like that, the more you've done them, also like just when you can feel your body go from um, – anaerobic system to like, you can literally feel the switch when you're like, everything's going so easy because you don't need any oxygen. And then all of a sudden, like it, your, your body just switches and you're like, wait, what just happened? It's, it's once you get to the point where you can like feel those things, I think it's so fascinating. 
I, uh, of all the training that we've done and all the things, the tough tests that we've done, I, there is, it still surprises me every time I go to jujitsu and we do a five to seven minute round of live rolling live rolling would be doing an actual 100% effort against whoever you're rolling against. And if you're rolling against somebody who's comparable or slightly better than you, that is the absolutely most challenging thing ever. Uh, and especially if the person is very athletic, very fit, maybe like a former wrestler or somebody who's young. Oh my God. I rolled with this one guy the other night here on Long Island. Uh, at Soka Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Wantaw, Long Island. Shout out to Soka. This kid was, he was, he must've been like just out of college or in college. He was a former wrestler and he was an absolute nightmare to roll with. And my God, I got done with that match and I was ready to just pack it on in, retire from Jiu-Jitsu and never do it again. Dude, that's the thing for, you know, we talk about Jiu-Jitsu a lot, but in CrossFit, I've done a lot of weird shit. I've pushed myself a lot been through some really but the 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 feeling you get like at the crossfit games or the worst ones were the open announcements those were the worst when you do an open announcement and you knew that workout was going to just suck like there was not nowhere to hide right you're in front of a bunch of people the pain there was incredibly profound in jujitsu though uh you could emulate similar because you can't hide either like when you're going against someone who's trying to kill you and not kill you, but really dominate you. And you're trying not to have that. It's, it is just like, you feel like you're just suffocating and you just like, you can't get out of the mix, but you can't stop either. It's just like this constant flow. I've done it once where uh, I was getting ready for a tournament in jujitsu and actually recently. And, uh, they, my instructor had one after another, after another, after another, just jump on top of me as soon as points were scored. So I was a, you know, more dominant player in that group and so as soon as i got points on somebody else boom the next person just jumped on my back and we went that for like 10 15 minutes it was it was terrible so if you haven't done jiu-jitsu you will eventually experience what we're talking about right here shark it's, i think it's called shark tank right yeah shark something yeah shark tank shark hey jason tank. um probably my favorite open announcement ever is you versus froning in san jose when they had you guys on the elevated platform and the thrusters and pull-ups thrusters and pull-ups castro was wearing a suit that it looked like he bought at a thrift store it was probably a really expensive suit but that suit was not fitting him just oh, right man. <laughs> and uh that was an awesome awesome experience i wasn't there live but i got to see that dude that was a good one um one of the ones i mean obviously we had like that full champs one and it was actually in santa cruz that was pretty uh cool um been a few of them, but that one, uh, yeah, they're, they're nerve wracking for sure. Cause it's just you and another person and, uh, trying to win. Um, well guys, we're coming up on the hour. I know we got calls to jump on. We got business to take care of here at NC fit. Uh, you know, any closing remarks going into, uh, you know, this upcoming week. If you're looking to get somebody, a coffee lover in your life, uh, their new next favorite bag of coffee, check out www.lastportcoffee.com. It's my company. I'm not sponsored. Jason drinks it every morning. Gabe's had it. It's fantastic coffee. And you can check me out at Instagram at MDV underscore FIT. NC Flex program as well. If you're looking to look good and you're not looking to do Fran, come do NC Flex. <laughs> Love it. Um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm actually going to write for next week's EOE weekly email, which if you don't subscribe to, you absolutely should. The link should be in the show notes is this idea that once the new year comes around, whatever resolution, whatever you're thinking about doing, don't get so caught up in having to be a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, get a lot further by being 80% 
100% of the time. Don't burn yourself out with those resolutions and sign up for EOE Weekly. Yeah, buddy. Um, all right, gentlemen. Well, hey, uh, I always appreciate talking to you guys. I hope everybody's having a great day. And uh, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and let us know what you guys want to dive into in future conversations. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.